podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to Red Inca. I'm Jared Kimber. This podcast has adverts, but if you prefer your podcast without, in the show notes you'll see the link to my Patreon page and you can listen to our chats uninterrupted. Patreon also comes with many other benefits as well, including a Discord channel and private chats with me. But now, the show. This episode of Red Inca is on leg spin, and it's from a lunch chat that I did for TalkSport 2 with dual World Cup winner Samuel Badry. You'll also hear Mark Nicholas on his experiences with leg spin. It's a really interesting chat on how Badry became an opening bowler who bowls leg spin, and many other things like why he wasn't as effective in red ball cricket, and the technical changes that made him so effective with the white ball. Welcome back to the cricket here on TalkSport 2. I'm Jared Kimber, and we're going to be talking leg spin in this break, despite the fact there's no leg spinner in this game, although Matt Parkinson's probably looking at this pitch going, probably could have thrown me the ball, guys. Uh, but he's not playing. But we do have in our commentary team, for those who are aware, Samuel Badri, who was a fantastic bowler. In fact, he's one of the most interesting players in the world in that he was the first and pretty much only specialist power play leg spinner in T20 cricket. The first thing I want to ask you, though, Samuel, is how did you get into leg spinning? Hello, Jared, and hello to listeners once again. I started at the primary school level, incidentally, the primary school team comprised mainly of those 11, 12-year-olds, and I was just about six or seven, and practicing in the nets with them, as you would as a young boy growing up, and from the moment you saw a ball, you wanted to be part of the action, you wanted to play, and I started bowling in the nets against these bigger boys, and I spun a few deliveries, really big, real prodigious turn, and the sports master at the time said, that he wanted me to be a part of the team, be around the team because of that natural ability to turn the ball. I used to turn the ball quite a lot in those early days. And as an eight-year-old, I made that representative primary school team against boys who were 12, 13 years old. And as you know, at that age group, any difference in age is a big difference in terms of maturity and development. So I was competing against boys who were much older than me, much bigger than me, much taller than me, much stronger than me. And I was able to still achieve a great level of success. And one of my early memories of playing cricket for the particular school was in a final that we were playing. And the team was chasing just around 60 runs. And they were batting around 52 for the loss of just two wickets. And they were on their way to victory. And the coach of the team decided to give me the ball. At that time, all of the parents who were wrong were shouting at the coach, what are you doing? Why are you giving this little boy the ball? You're going to give away the game. And as fate would have it, I got three wickets in my first over. I ended up getting six wickets in the game. And we won that match. And every one of the parents were praising the coach. Why did you take so long to give him the ball? I mean, that's a great story. I, lo- I love the idea of you out there as a little fella completely bamboozling people with leg spin. In fact, a lot of leg spinners when they're very young have that kind of impact on games. Sometimes it's usually when they grow that they struggle a little bit more with their leg spin. But obviously coming from the West Indies, you know, uh, Bishu is of a similar age group to you. Leg spin wasn't really a big thing in the Caribbean. Did you have a hero at home or was it one of the overseas bowlers? Well, from the early days when I started, there was a leg spinner by the name of Rajendra Danraj. He hails from Trinidad and Tobago. As a matter of fact, he hails from not too far from where I live. And he was just making his way into international cricket. Just played a handful of test matches for the West Indies, but was 
hugely successful for Trinidad and Tobago in regional cricket. So he was one of the early influences in my career. And following him, of course, we had Dinanath Ramnarayan, another Trinidad and Tobago-born leg spinner who had relative success at the international level. I think he had something like 45 wickets in 12 test matches. Mm -hmm. So those two from, I would say, internally and, of course, externally, the master himself, the now deceased Shane Warne, who had that early influence not only in my career, but I'm sure many, many bowlers around the world. The interesting thing about your bowling is that you talked about spinning it a lot when you were young and you've just mentioned Shane Warne, but that's not the leg spinner that we saw at the international and the franchise level. In fact, you played 12 first-class games and, you know, had modest results there. It's really T20 where you're an absolute star, obviously winning two World Cups, going to the IPL. When did you make the change from spinning the ball so much to not doing that? Well, it had to do, like I mentioned a bit earlier in, in the show, to actually stay in the team and to, to be selected on a continuous basis. Because when I was trying to turn the ball a lot, obviously I didn't have as much control and I was leaking runs. And I found that I wasn't selected for games thereafter. And I needed to be more consistent and more economical as opposed to wicket-taking in order to play. And as a young boy coming through, that's what you want to do. All you want to do is play. So from a selection standpoint, I think uh, the creativity... And that natural talent is stifled. I don't think that's unique to the Caribbean or unique to Trent Tobago. I think that happens around the world. And like I said, that natural talent doesn't get an opportunity to blossom. And then you have to change your game, change your style, change your approach. And that's what happened to me. So I was someone who turned the ball quite a lot. And just in order to play and to be selected, I had to become a little bit more economical. And just like, you know, we say the school system, it stifles creativity. I think that sometimes... Our selectors stifle that natural ability in players. How do you go from that to becoming a specialist opening bowler? I don't, I don't know if you know the stats. I just looked them up. They're absolutely fascinating. You bowled over half your balls in the power play of a T20 game. You bowled 2,228 of your 4,100 balls in the power play. The next most from any leg spinner is Rashid Khan, who's only bowled 837. So you've almost tripled the next best on the list. How did this happen? How did you end up with the new ball bowling leg spin in T20 cricket? Well, I started doing it in local club cricket back in Trinidad. I did it for my club team. We didn't have many fast bowlers in our team. As a matter of fact, our pitch was quite conducive to spin bowling. So I did that for a few years just at the club level. And then the Stanford T20 tournament came around in 2006. And because I had that success at the local level, I had that opportunity to open the bowling for Trinidad and Tobago in that tournament. And of course, I had a huge amount of success. Batsmen in the region generally don't play spin bowling well, far less risk spin bowling and far less with someone who's opening the bowling. So I had Tremendous success in that tournament in 2006, again in 2008, where we went on to win. And I was one of the leading wicket takers and again, very miserly in terms of the economy. And then thereafter, we had the Caribbean T20 tournament for multiple occasions. Trinidad and Tobago won. We went to the Champions League. And then I was selected for the West Indies team. So it all started in club cricket because of a paucity of fast bowling options <laughs> and because of the conditions that we had to operate on. Why do you think you were so successful? One thing I noticed with you is that you didn't have a strong front arm as some other leg spinners. If you compare yourself to Anil Kumble or, or Shahid Afridi or, or Shane Morn, you also used a scrambled seam. I think you were maybe one of the first leg spinners that I really noticed that did that. Obviously, you had a very good wrong, so you could go both ways. You, perhaps maybe a little bit quicker. What was it that made you specifically so good with the new ball compared to other leg spinners? 
it's really interesting how things evolved throughout my career. I mentioned Shane Warne as that early influence, but when I started to do what I ended up doing, my influence changed to Shahid Afridi. The way he bowled and the way he went about his business, generally flat through the air, generally quick. And so I tried to model my bowling in that sort of terms based on what I was doing at the time. I think, like you rightly mentioned, my front arm fell away quite a lot. I had that collapsed action. And that worked in my favor because it allowed the ball to stay low and to skid on to the batsman, particularly with the new ball. And many times I had batsmen playing across the line. I had them out LBW or bowl. So in that regard, that I would say improper technique, because if we want to call it that in inverted commas, worked to my advantage. And of course, with that scramble seam, the ball more often than not hit the face of the ball and went on straight. And like I said, at that time, not many batsmen were used to a spin bowler opening the bowling. And mm. typically, opening batsmen will be more comfortable with pace on the ball and fast bowlers. So I think I had that, I would say, I sort of blindsided those batsmen who weren't used to that at the time. It's a little bit different now because there are so many spin bowlers opening the bowling that batsmen are much better at facing spinners with a new ball. But certainly at the time that I started, it was a new phenomenon. And how much did this scrambled seam help? So for those that don't know, you know, if, if you look at the old videos of Shane Warne, the, the seam is, you know, beautifully aligned going towards first slip when he's bowling leg spin. Your seam is all over the place. And the idea is that some balls will hit the seam and some balls will hit the smooth part of the ball. And the white ball, I don't know if this is scientifically true, Sammy, you might be able to tell me, but it appears to me that when you hit the shiny bit of the white ball early, it skids even more than a red ball does. Yeah, it certainly does. And, and one of the other things, in addition to what you are saying there with that, I suppose, variable pace, some will skid on, some will slow up a little bit, is that many batsmen don't pick the spin bowlers, the wrist bowlers in particular, off their hands. They look at the seam position as the ball comes down the track. And if you have that scramble seam, it's a less of an opportunity for the batsman to know which direction the ball is going. So in addition to that variable bounce and pace of the surface, you also have batsmen not being able to pick and to see or to get a clue as to which direction the ball was going. So that also assists in that regard. I just want to go back to something that you talked about before, and we'll bring Mark Nicholas in on this, someone who's an expert in leg spin, obviously he helped uh, Shane Warne's book, but has played a lot of leg spin and has been involved in the game for a long time. But the coaching... Do you think that you ended up as such a unique bowler because of the lack of coaching? I mean, you have a look at the West Indies side now and you have a look at someone like Jaden Seals with this perfect fast bowler's technique. And the spinners, Verasami Pamol, is bowling on his tiptoes from this really awkward position. It feels like the pace bowling coaching in the West Indies is still absolutely top quality. But spin bowling, it feels like a lot of you spinners are kind of left on your own a little bit. And that's absolutely true. We have never had sort of specialized spin bowling coaches it's all about trial and error. There has never been that sort of focus in that department. And I think you're absolutely right. We feel abandoned at times, left alone and, and having to learn by trial and error. And I think we have a lot of technical deficiencies in the region in terms of spin bowling. When last have we produced a quality enough spin bowler who can really be of permanence in the West Indies team? We've struggled for over a long, long period of time. Devendra Bishu is perhaps the last one, maybe Shane Schillingford as an off-spinner, but beyond those two names, we have struggled to find a quality permanent spinner in the West Indies team. And the pitches that we have been producing, it's not conducive to the fast bowlers. So if we want to be competitive in Test match cricket in particular, 
we have to find quality spin bowlers who can help us take 20 wickets on these types of tracks. So I think it's a, an area that we need to really look at as a region in terms of developing quality spinners, whether they be wrist spinners or finger spinners, investing in some sort of coaching mechanism and really allowing our players that opportunity to become more technically proficient. Mark, I just wanted to bring you in here, especially as someone who spent so much time with Shane Warne. He was obviously physically unlike other spinners, and that's a huge advantage to have over anyone else. But you wrote the book with him. What sort of leg spinner do you think Shane Warne is if he doesn't have access to someone like Terry Jenner, who sort of pioneered the biomechanics of leg spin? Well, he had a lot of, a unique amount of natural ability, I'd say. But what Jenner gave him was consistency. So one of the first things that Benno ever said to him was just the leg break, just bowl the leg break. Spend the next three years learning how to land the leg break. And when you get it spot on, ball after ball after ball, then try your flipper or your googly. But you're a long way from it if you can't bowl a consistent leg break. While doing that, he developed the slider. So almost unintentionally, he had two balls. Subtle variations between the two. What Jenna did was have a series of balance and checks that came from their original meetings together when Warren went to see him and famously turned up with a case of beer and Jenna told him to take it back to the bottle store because there wouldn't be any drinking going on. There'd be training and there'd bowling going on. And those checks and balances were ongoing. So though I wouldn't say he particularly coached Shane day in, day out, he was always there for Shane to fall back on. You're right, his body had this very strong upper body, very strong shoulders, very strong wrists, but when they were injured, he was suddenly like anybody else, and he fell back on technique. He had a very good action. He drove his right side. He used to say that driving the right hip is almost the most important aspect of the way that I bowl because that gets the energy on the ball, that gets the revs, that gets me following through and completing my action. So I think Jenna was an excellent ongoing balance and check man for him, perhaps even more than he was anything else. He was a close friend. Something that Samuel just said that I picked up on was, you know, I had to learn to stay on. I was leaking runs. And Warney often said, the key to leg spin, young leg spinners, stay on. <laughs> you bowl the next over. When the captain takes you off, you can't be bowling, can you? So you have to stay on. You've got to find a way to stay on. So you've got to develop your accuracy. Samuel, I just want to ask you something really specific. When leg spinner f first came through in T20 cricket, there was a lot of talk about how unpredictable leg spinners were. But Anil Kumble, Shahid Afridi, Shane Morn, yourself, you're actually all incredibly accurate bowlers. You do occasionally get leg spinners who aren't as accurate. Ishodi's a very good example of that. But it's more than just the unpredictable nature. Why do you think leg spinners cut through so much in T20 cricket? Yeah, I think it's the fact that they're able to turn the ball both ways and, and the mysticism around leg spin bowling. Like I mentioned a little bit earlier, I don't think batsmen the world over play wrist spin bowling that well. They aren't picking them off the hand. They aren't picking them in the air. And certainly they aren't picking them off the surfaces. And because of that, in addition to the fact that wrist spinners are generally attacking type bowlers and wicket-taking bowlers, I think that the batting against wrist spin has somewhat deteriorated in the past maybe 10, 15, 20 years or so. So that has helped the wrist spinners. And, and you're quite right. When T20 cricket just started, everyone thought that the wrist spinners will be out of the game and they might not have any part to play in T20 cricket. But we've seen that that myth has been dispelled and wrist spinners are the ones who are really taking this game forward and are the ones who are at the top of the rankings in T20 international cricket. 
Mark, when we were talking about Shane Warne yesterday, I said leg spin wasn't a big factor in Australian cricket before Shane Warne. And you called me on that this morning, that there were leg spinners around. And, and you're right. What I meant was it wasn't really talked about that much and they were throwing the ball when nothing was happening. The interesting thing is, in the last couple of years, leg spin's become so big in cricket again, but we still haven't seen the bowlers come through in test cricket. Now, there's obviously part of that, and I'll, I want to ask you this almost as a batter more than anything else. A lot of that is just waiting on the bad balls, isn't it? Yeah, without a doubt. The bigger bats, you can miss hit it. You've got to remember that there's lots of reasons why a bigger bat is a problem for a bowler. And one of them is the confidence it gives the batsman. So, for example, if you're looking to hit over the top in the old days with a little two-pound, six-ounce bat, you knew you had to nail it. If you mistimed it, you'd probably be caught in the infield or certainly by someone who was halfway back. Nowadays, you sort of think, I can go over extra cover or mid-wicket and I can miss hit it and I'll be okay. And that's pretty unfair on the bowler. Yes, there's no doubt that it's just very difficult to bowl leg spin. I mean, that's the simple reason. So in one-day cricket, T20 cricket, any short-form cricket, you can bowl bad balls and they can be wicket-taking balls because your field's back. In fact, I'd say the long hop from a wrist spinner, particularly one that gets enough overspin to hurry the ball onto the bat, is a natural wicket-taking delivery. It's quite hard to set up a pull stroke or a cut stroke if a bowler's getting a lot of overspin on the ball. I think the mystery factor, which way is it going? Make a sharp decision to attack it. If you're hitting across it, there's an element of doubt, particularly in the countries where the pitches are a bit slower or a bit drier. And when we talk about Warren, we're slightly confusing the issue because he was freakishly good in the way that Bradman was freakishly good with the bat and Sobers as an all-rounder. And so you have to bring it back to not the lowest common denominators, but the more general common denominators. There is a standard of leg spin that now works fantastically well in the short form that still isn't good enough for test match cricket. And that's the problem they face. And there aren't many warns on that tree. Samuel, I mean, you are almost the uber specialist when it comes to T20 leg spinners. So much of you grew I think you played 197 T20 games and 12 first-class games. Is there something that can be done to help the leg spinners in the red ball cricket? I mean, everything that Mark has just said, that all makes sense. But is there something that you think that can be done to actually help encourage leg spin in the red ball game? I think a simple thing is to give them the opportunities. They are not given consistent enough opportunities. In my respectful view, I think they're given a couple games here and there and they're not persistent with and you can't develop particularly as a wrist spin bowler if you're not playing consistently it's playing out in the field in the heat of the battle that's where you learn your art and you learn your trade but if you're playing one game here one game there you aren't given that opportunity to develop and to grow take Shane one for example in his first test match what was it 150 runs and just a solitary wicket and if our leg spinner does that now Michelle Swepson had some figures in that test match in Pakistan. I'm not too sure how many more test matches he will play because we don't persist with these young guys. So if we want to encourage leg spin bowling, if we want to give these guys that backing and that support, they have to play games as frequently as possible. And you see a lot of teams, and I keep going back to this in terms of selection, they prefer to go with a more economical finger spinner who can bowl in, let's say, one international cricket, 10 overs and pick up maybe one wicket for 50 runs as opposed to the wrist spinner who might bowl 10 overs and go for 70 runs and get you two or three wickets. And that's a decision that's made by most teams to go more defensive than attacking. And if we aren't giving wrist spinners an opportunity to play, well, we aren't going to produce many quality ones.
Mark, I've talked to you as Shane Warne's biographer and I've talked to you as a batter. I want to talk to you as a captain for a minute. One thing that Shane Warne was always very upset with was the treatment of young spinners, which is essentially what Samuel has just talked about there. I know that Graham Smith had trouble when he had Imran Tahir as well. Captaining a leg spinner is a completely different form of captaincy than leading a finger spinner, isn't it? Very much so. Not just in field settings either, but in understanding the mental stress of the job. The first thing a wrist spinner is worried about is landing it. And when you're under pressure and nervous, you're quite likely not to land it. Full tosses and long hops are, I wouldn't say they're the norm, but they're pretty usual. You remember that, that awful, clammy nervousness. You don't want to humiliate yourself. So that's the first thing that a captain must understand about a leg spinner's role. It's the hardest thing in cricket. It's probably even harder than wicket keeping, which is pretty darn hard. So if you put yourself in the mind of a leg spinner, what does he need? He needs some protection. He needs you to understand what he's trying to achieve because it may be that he's an aggressive thinker and wants to take wickets. So he needs some close catchers as well as guys out in the deep. You have to work together to find the right field. That's absolutely crucial. You have to know your batsman. Where's he strong? Where's he weak? Do we want to bowl very straight at this guy? Do we want to bowl lob it up wide? All these things are crucial. You've got to work with your spinner so that you understand each other. If you've got a template for a spinner, I want him to go to and over, I want him to bowl to five, four fields. I want him to come on after the seamers are tired. I want him to bowl with the old ball, not the new hard ball. If you're set in your mind as a way a spinner works, then there's no way you'll develop spinners. You've got to have imagination to captain spin well. Samuel, I just want to talk about variations just quickly to finish up. You had a leg spinner and you had a wrong and You also had one that obviously went straight, which was, I'm assuming, a slider. You didn't have a flipper, did you? No, I didn't have the flipper, more less slider than anything else. And those were my variations essentially there that you just mentioned. But what was my strong point, I think, was my accuracy and my consistency and my changes in pace. And also I had a very good googly, which helped. And bowling at the stage of the game, when I bowl in that power play, just the two fielders back, you had to be very accurate. You had to bowl for the most part, wicket to wicket, avoid giving room or width or anything like that. So... And my accuracy really helped me. But just going back to that last point that we were talking about in terms of wrist spinners, I was looking at the Under-19 World Cup quite recently, and I was expecting to see a plethora of wrist spinners from the different teams. And I think it's just maybe less than a handful of wrist spinners from the 16 teams that were here. And that to me was quite surprising. India, incidentally, didn't have one wrist spinner in their ranks. West Indies, two, not one. I remember... England having one Rian Ahmed who was quite good, doesn't have a big leg spin. His stock delivery seemed to be his wrong on his googly. And there was this left hand back of the Yama. His name eludes me at the moment, but he's played franchise cricket around the world. Nur Ahmed, left hand back of the Anaris spinner. So again, looking at world cricket, I would think that you want to promote these types of bowlers. You want to get these types of bowlers quite young because these are the wicket takers. And we are seeing that lack of wicket-taking options in Test Match cricket in particular because there are no wrist spinners around. It's interesting how Adil Rashid chose not to pursue the longer format of the game. I mean, I know there's a lot of opportunities to make money in the short forms of the game, but he found the stress of it incredibly demanding, having to play county cricket over four days and and work harder at at that skill. He thought, now, actually, I'll stick with where I am. Adam Zampa, Yusvendra Trahal. There's quite a few very good wrist spinners out there who are not test match bowlers, and that tells you all you need to know. know, It's a long, hard 
journey to become such a good leg spinner that you will feature regularly in your test team and help your country win matches. Even Yasir Shah has dropped off the radar a bit of late. It's just hard. It's very hard. Yasir Shah was actually someone I wanted to ask you about specifically, Samuel. I mean, we, we know he'd taken wickets in the West Indies before. You know, Mark and I have seen him play very well in Australia and England. Obviously, in the UAE at times, he was absolutely unplayable. And he was, for a little while, one of the better um, power play T20 bowls. But he's dropped off a little bit. Do you have any thoughts on why Yasir Shah isn't the force that he once was? I saw him in the West Indies here. I think it was last year when Pakistan toured and he came on the back of a previous tour when he had an exceptional series and there were lots of expectations for him to do well but he didn't really have much of an impact. I think he's not putting as much revs on the ball as possible. His action seems to have fallen away a bit and I don't know whether or not it has anything to do with an injury to his shoulder but he isn't getting that energy on the ball that he used to and that zip through the air and that has affected him quite a lot. One thing I would say about spinners generally is that it is easier to go from that classical type action, that big turning action to someone who is flatter and someone who is more defensive as opposed to being a defensive type bowler, one with a flat trajectory and then trying to turn the ball and spin the ball. Similar to a batsman, it's easier for a defensive type batsman who is technically sound to then go and become more flamboyant and attacking as opposed to trying to get an attacking batsman to play test match cricket and to be technically strong and to be defensive. So for the young spinners out there who are listening on, try to get that ball to turn, try to have that trajectory because it's easier to go from that to flat and defensive as opposed to being flat and defensive and then trying to get some turn. Samuel, I'm just going to butt in with one quick story that tells you all you need to know about Shane Warne, I think. 2005 Ashes, at the start of it, the Lord's Test Match, the night before the game, a beautiful evening. The teams divided up their practice sessions. England had the morning session, 9 until 12, and then the Australians, 12.30 until 3.30. So the Australians arrived, did their warm-ups got into the nets, had some fielding. And I was working with Channel 4 Cricket at the time, and we had a lot of tricky preparation. We were doing some live pieces the next morning that needed rehearsal. We needed the pavilion empty for us to be able to do that. We were there very late, and we didn't wrap up that final rehearsal in the pavilion. And I remember the time exactly, 20 to 7, 6.40 in the evening. And I came out of the pavilion with our producer and the cameraman who was working on the little piece with, with me. And as we walked down the steps to turn right to then go, right and left to get out of the ground two figures appeared from behind the side screen at the nursery end of the ground one in a tracksuit one in, a, in trousers and a shirt Terry Jenner and Shane Warne and they walked the whole way across the ground and I said you're late boys and Warney said there ain't no substitute for balls bold and he'd been there all afternoon on the night before the Ashes began. He had a wonderful series. Australia lost it, but he bowled magnificently. He took a lot of wickets in that series. And there he was, the best of them all, practicing for five hours one afternoon the day before the test began. Beautiful. Thank you very much to two-time World Cup winning leg spinner Samuel Badri and leg spinner and, sorry, leg spin fan, I should say, Mark Nicholas and uh, Shane Warne biographer and, of course, myself, Jared Kimber, the leg spin enthusiast, I think is the best I could give you that. Thank you for listening. There is more information on my guests in the show notes. Please support them where you can, but also support us. If you can't help out on Patreon, every single review, share, or word of mouth suggestion to your friend helps us. 
However, this podcast is made available by the people who support us at Patreon, so thank you to all of those who do. There is a link to the Patreon in the show notes. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes the best audio anyone can from random Zoom calls. Makunja Banredi is in charge of our video side. Orijoti Senpathy turns the files into video podcasts, and Shibanka Patacharya makes our graphics. Our theme tune is called The Prisoner by the Red Crickets.